if failure is the surest path to success? I'm Kate, owner of 123, a business dedicated to supporting leaders who want to be their best selves every day because your employees deserve a leader who does their very best. Leading is hard work, but the chairs here at 123 are comfy. So please have a seat and join today's conversation about the principles of high reliability. Hi. Hi. I'm joining me in the comfy chairs today is my favorite person. Yay. Um, <laughs> I am fortunate enough to have my husband, Nate, uh, join me. Not just because he's a, a willing subject that <laughs> you know can't get away from me, but because he has some a very extensive and personal experience with a topic that I think is a good subject for us to talk about here in the comfy chairs. And that's the concept of high reliability. So I, uh, I served as a nuclear reactor operator on a fast attack submarine in the Navy. Uh, I went in in 95, finished up my stint in January of 01. Uh, the submarine service is one of the, uh, prime examples of what high reliability um, can look like. And I'd like to define my terms up front so we're all speaking about the same thing. The textbook definition is that high reliability organization, um, that's where you are in a complex high-risk setting but consistently avoid errors and incidents. So one of the things that's necessary... Define consistently. Uh, <laughs> oh, that depends on what the definition of is, is, uh, it's probably somewhat defined by the industry in all honesty. Oh yeah, for sure. There are a number of industries that are associated with, with being high reliability organizations or striving to be, um, obviously we talked about the submarine Navy also very closely related to that is, um, nuclear power, nuclear energy, aviation, uh, anything that's offshore, mm -hmm. offshore oil rigs, uh, railroad, yeah. information security is kind of a, a newer one. Yeah. And then and I... Oh, we're kind of lagging behind in that well, one, actually. Yeah, we are. Um, but then I know of high reliability uh, through my time in healthcare. So you can see that uh, high stakes, lots of you know assets, human lives, uh, things of that nature when we talk about high-risk settings, that's what we mean, that it can result in loss of life or such a significant loss of assets, financial and otherwise, that you have to avoid failure mm -hmm. or face significant consequences. There are some key pillars and practices associated with it that I want to provide up front and then use as sort of a guideline to talk about your time in the Navy and how you experienced those. Sound like a plan? Absolutely. Right, so the pillars are leadership commitment, a culture of safety, and process improvement. And then those are lived out through the practices, and we'll define these a little bit more as we go on. Um, but the first is sensitivity to operations, a preoccupation with failure, a reluctance to simplify, resilience, and the last is deference to expertise. So what I'd be curious to start with, Nate, is talking about how you experienced leadership commitment. 
Well, leadership commitment is kind of ingrained in all the military branches. This is it's, true. It's one of those things where you can't, you can't lead people into dangerous situations standing behind them. Yeah. So uh, I experienced that exact same thing uh, from the junior officers that I worked with that were still trying to figure it all out the same way I was all the way up through our top tier chain of command, uh, the commanding officer of the, the ship. When you were out for a long period of time, you would get to know those people a little better even because you'd have more personal interaction with them. Uh, the Providence was only about 350 feet long and three stories high. There's only so many places you can be. So you would bump into these people and you would have personal interaction with them. And there was always, that's actually one of the reasons I volunteered for submarines was that personal yeah. interaction, that crew level interaction uh, was kind of the experience that I wanted to have in my mm -hmm. Navy experience. I didn't want to serve on a aircraft carrier where there were 5,000 people and I knew, you know, yeah. a handful of them. Well, one of the, the hallmarks of that, you know, in my experience, what I observe um, from your time there is the fact that you're still in communication with the last captain that you served under. Absolutely. We've you know, traded we've, beer recipes. Exactly. We've brewed yeah. Captain Bodden's beer. So that, that speaks to that. And in that leadership space, even though this may seem kind of antithetical to a military setting, one of the skill sets that leaders need to be able to practice to be highly reliable um, is taking a, a non-hierarchical approach to leadership. So even if there's structure of like rank and officer and enlisted, there is that you can come to me, you can... Oh yeah, um, the CO, Captain Bodden specifically, had a sign on his door that said, uh, uh, frequent communication is the key to success. It's like you read my notes, transparent and continuous <laughs> communication is he, the second skill set. Yeah, he would always have time, it, you know, it, and if he didn't have the time, he would schedule it. And, and the same for the, the skipper before him that I worked with, Captain Medley. So leadership commitment and one of the things I'm hearing you talk about is not just to, you know, like quote unquote operational excellence, but also to the people. Your people are your operational excellence. You can't have operational excellence without excellent people. That's a good answer. Thank you. So <laughs> what about um, that second pillar, culture of safety? So culture of safety, um, on a submarine, there can't be a different culture. Safety has to be the first five things you think about when you do anything. Mm -hmm. um, obviously, there are tactical situations where safety will sometimes take a second or third seat. Same holds true for a reactor. If it's not safe, you don't do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, we, train, we train in damage control uh, pretty extensively oh, in, the, yeah. in the submarine community especially, but in the Navy in general. Well, we, we've talked before about... Um you know, some of the really key training that contributes to that safe culture. And one of the things that I've heard you say before is that every sailor is a firefighter. Uh, on a submarine, we're all trained that way. Every single guy to the man is trained to fight fires, including the officers. They're all, we, we do the damage control trainers hand in hand with, with officers. Tell me a little bit more about damage control training, because it does seem to be the thing that creates that culture of safety DNA. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, there are off-site firefighting trainers 
as well as flooding trainers. The flooding trainer is basically a big tank. It's made up to look like the inside of a ship. It's got pipes everywhere with a ton of fittings and a lot of valves. And what will happen is you go into this space and all of a sudden the pipe bursts. So the flange will just start spewing water. Well, they've got a big tank behind them <laughs> at this place. There's a control room way up high. And then there's a big reservoir tank and there's these giant pumps that just pump water in and they have switches and dials and they can control all the different casualties, all the, whether it's an isolable leak or a non-isolable leak, they've got control over everything that you've got in there. And uh, you go in and you practice and they, they basically, if you start to get ahead, they'll throw a couple more leaks in. It's all about like working against the, the unwinnable situation. I'm showing my I'm showing my nerd genes here, but that's the Kobayashi Maru. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It well, I mean that scenario that Roddenberry dreamed up was born out of real world military training. You can't always win, but you got to figure out how to minimize casualties when you can't. That's such an interesting mindset of approaching safety is not trying to like avoid danger or avoid accidents but approaching it as it's going to happen so how do you address it and like you said minimize yeah any casualty what about process improvement personally i'm very quick to own up to a mistake yes you are it's it's something that's that's part of that training is if you mess up make sure you tell somebody right away yeah so it, and if you see something that happened that's that was the mistake it's not a problem to say this is the mistake this is what this is the mistake that was made and it, in the high reliability organizations or at least the one i was in um that was that's a positive like mm-hmm. saying this is what happened i saw what happened this is this is how everything happened being able to piece together that timeline saves a lot of time in figuring out what went wrong. Yeah. Outside of high reliability organizations, it seems like there's less uh, positive sentiment around that kind of statement. Well, it like can it, feel like an accusation or it, an exposure. Right. So and if it, you don't have that shared practice of, something's gone wrong and we're going to talk about it where, you know, human nature is to kind of be like, I've messed up. I have to keep it secret. Yeah. Yeah. If, if somebody has those kind of instincts uh, on a boat, that's bad. Very bad. Like you gotta, you gotta get that out there. You gotta say, Hey, I screwed this up. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember one of the worst dressings down that I ever got was because I had screwed up. And, uh, I told, I told chief about it. I said, Hey, uh, I messed up during this drill and this is what I did. And yeah, he had a talk with me that I still remember. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've it wasn't, that one. it wasn't angry. <laughs> he wasn't, he wasn't screaming at me. It was, it was a nice, quiet conversation. I did not make that mistake again. Yeah. I made mistakes, but not that one. Exactly. Right. <laughs> Yeah, and that's, so leadership, this understanding that safety happens 
like safety is important because bad things happen. And then how are we constantly improving? Yeah. Always constant improvement, training, 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 training. I love hearing that as a, as somebody that works in training and development, it's good to know. Now, what about, so I'm going to flip us over to those practices, the, how those pillars play out in the day to day. The very first one, um, I think the language that's used is kind of academic, so I want to talk about what that is, but also acknowledge that in a military setting that has literal rank and file, that it may not be entirely um, evident. And that's this idea of sensitivity to operations, which means that leaders are listening to what's being said on the front line, that where the work is being done, frontline employees are engaged and involved and have a have a say in improvements and reporting on problems. For sure, the, the chiefs, the goat locker, had some ability to influence things. And then if they were able to sell their upper chain of command on it, then it could be submitted back to the governing bodies that handled the fleet ops. Okay. And that's how changes would happen. It my chief would listen to what I had to say. But there it was still an environment where you felt you could speak up about those things. I could speak up. I was actually encouraged to speak up about things that I thought were safety problems or things like that. Yeah. That that was immediately addressed. If we're talking about, you know, high reliability being about um, minimizing events, right? That that it's not just that leaders have a responsibility for listening to what's happening on the front line. There's also responsibility from the front line members of the team when there's something that could result in a safety event to speak up. And it sounds like that's what you, that's where that really came to life. Oh, absolutely. That was, Yeah that encouraging you to speak up if something wasn't going well. I was a member of a fairly rarefied military segment. Yes. Military members are not often told to question the orders that they're given, but we were actually not so much encouraged to question orders, but we were encouraged to know what was safe and what was not. And if we were given an order that violated that safety, we were told to ask for clarification and explain to the officer that was giving the order where we should look in the book to verify that the order they were giving was correct. So, I mean, you talk about chapter and verse, uh, there were parts of that reactor plant manual that I knew by heart. Mm -hmm. And if I was given an order that was contrary to that, which I don't believe I ever was, I like, you didn't have that experience. No, I I don't think I ever had to question somebody's order. There were a couple of times where somebody was, you know, doing what we call cookbooking where you're just reading it line by line. (laughs) Let's do the procedure line by line. And sometimes uh, something would happen and I'd say, uh, sir, did you miss a step there? <laughs> That's, oh, yeah, thank you. You know, it, it was it was always like that. It was never, uh, it, there was never any, you know, like a few good men, you know, direct orders or anything like that. It wasn't <laughs> like that. Let's talk a little bit about um, qualification 
on submarines because sure. I think that's the whole thing with submarines is it is that qualification and process. I think that's where one leadership commitment is demonstrated because and oh, yeah. and it's also that sensitivity to operations, that understanding what's happening on the line of work, not just not just for officers, but also for enlisted. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I would say every every enlisted man who has signed a qual card has worn that that leadership badge. Yeah. For sure. So talk about talk about the qualification process on so subs. When you first report to your very first submarine, um, you are a nub. You're a non useful <laughs> body. Or uh, I've also heard it, uh, new underway, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, You report on board and you start off, uh, they have you report to the mess decks. And uh, and again, this is your first boat. Um, Once a guy's qualified on a a platform, then when he moves to the next platform, he does a a qualification process there, but it's not nearly as... uh, Rigorous. Well, it's still rigorous. It has to be. You have to learn the new platform, um, but it's it's not as uh, demeaning. Oh, it's not as <laughs> the 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 people qualifying you are not as condescending if you show up already having earned your fish somewhere else. That's fair. But when you show up and you are a complete nub uh, on your first boat, you go to work for the the mess decks and and work for the the cooks, and it's a good place to meet the crew. Mm-hmm. Right, you get to meet everybody because everybody comes through there, and uh, you start to make your friends, and you start to learn. You have twelve months from your date of reporting on board to finishing your qualification process, and the the submarine warfare insignia call card is when I was in was about two pages. You have to go to each division, and you there are specific pieces of gear of theirs that you have to learn about. You have to know pretty much where everything on the boat is powered from. Um, as far as like which panels power, what equipment, um, you need to know how to de-energize it in case there's an electrical fire. You got to know how to turn it off. And every person to a man has to learn this. So the cooks that you're serving with when you first show up. If they're wearing fish, they know how the reactor works. That's, uh, that is so amazing. Yeah. And that's, that's actually an amazing act of compassion to expect that of people doing all types of jobs because instead of saying, oh, you're, you're quote unquote, just a cook. You don't need to know how to do this. It's, we're not going to leave you helpless. Yeah, There's no such thing as just a anything. You're a submariner. Exactly. So get yeah. to work. <laughs> <laughs> the qualification process that, you're talking about right now and obviously that you experienced was for enlisted correct um very similar for officers entirely different Did oh very have... similar okay yeah um they still have all the same systems that they have to you know have a, a basic working knowledge of what the process seems to give is a sense that nobody's too good to do something that ability to have somewhat equal footing within reason well, again, it's a small crew. Yeah. So um, I've cleaned the bilge next to a chief. Mm-hmm. In fact, my chief used to bilge dive with us during field day all the time. Good for him. Nobody was uh, more enthusiastic about getting down in the bilges and cleaning them out <laughs> than Chief Ball. That's so fascinating. Oh, yeah. yeah. Still a character. He still is. Yes, he is. Let's uh, let's flip over to 
what I think is kind of the big one. Um, and that's the preoccupation with failure. That's absolutely, I would say, the biggest point. Preoccupation with failure is an interesting way of putting it because mm-hmm. I would say that we were preoccupied with not failing. We weren't worried about succeeding. We were worried about preventing failure. Success comes naturally if you prevent failure, right? Yeah. It, you can't help but succeed if you continue to avoid failure. Mm-hmm. You will succeed because you get infinite tries if you don't fail. Don't fail. <laughs> yeah. Right. So you just get better and better the more you don't fail. So mm-hmm. what we did was what we would find the weak spots and shore them up. Okay. And that was the continuous process was always make sure that the weakest link in your chain was being strengthened. And if it was always the same link, then that's the biggest issue you've got. So we trained constantly. Like I said, um, it was, we, we ran drills all the time, simulating fire, simulating flooding, simulating reactor failure, simulating everything. Um, some of my captains were uh, notorious for just walking back and uh, turning something off. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah, that would happen. That was actually a lot more frequent than I would like to think about. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just uh, do, are people prepared for yeah. when something goes wrong? <laughs> what, what are you going to do if this happens? Yeah. I think that's what that... I agree with you. I'm not entirely not comfortable, but really thrilled with the language preoccupation with failure, Mm. but it is still, you're preoccupied with if or when, and most likely when something goes wrong, how are we responding? It's not a most likely when, it's a definitely when. Yeah. Things will always happen. Bad things. No, human error, never mind machine failure or. Yeah, they're both equally as possible. Yeah. So it's how do we, how do we respond to ensure the worst doesn't happen as a result of something going wrong. Right. How do you minimize that? Mm-hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to jump around here because the, in the list, the last practice is deference to expertise, mm. but it seems like it's, it's almost the thing that comes first in some ways. Deference because, to expertise is ingrained yeah. in, you know, in that culture. The experts are the ones who came before you. <laughs> Hey, nobody becomes an expert overnight and the people that have been doing, you know, this job for 20 years are experts mm-hmm. by virtue of their repetition. Yeah. Well, they know these procedures so well they could write them down. Well, the six foot manual too, like yeah. you're, you're <laughs> dependent upon people that know their stuff. Yeah. It's so complex mm-hmm. that there's no way. And that's another one of the points. It yeah. is. Yeah. We'll they, save that real quick then. Yeah. Well, I think I, I think it's possible to talk about them because they're it. connected. I mean, really they're all interconnected, but they really that are. Reluctance to simplify. And yeah. it's it's the idea that a complex problem requires a complex solution. Yeah. So you you do need expertise, people that understand the complexity. It's almost not so much a reluctance, but an inability to simplify. There's no simple way to address a lot of the problems. 
Okay. You cannot make it simpler. If you could, they'd have already done it because, uh, as my chief was fond of saying, when whenever they sailor proof something, God creates a dumber sailor. <laughs> so right. it it's impossible to simplify it past a certain point yeah. because the the equipment itself is so complex and the scenarios I, are so. Complex. I'll admit I struggle with this one a little bit because I've also experienced in the environments where I've worked and particularly because most of my responsibility has been around, you know, management and the employee side of, of things that I do see that there can be a tendency in those high risk, high stakes settings to overcomplicate simple things. But again, I do think that there are cases where some of the leadership activities um, or the kind of the employee level engagement responsibilities that an employer has get overcomplicated even in those high risk areas because, well, if we're in a high risk, if we're in a complex, complicated environment, everything must be complex. And that's a, a misleap of logic, if you will. So I followed one of the links um, in that blog post I shared with you mm -hmm. on Gemba Walks. I saw that. I'm guessing it's named after a person that used to... No, no? it's not. It's, it translates roughly from Japanese to the real place. Okay. And it's, it's this practice of you're going to go to the point of work, you go see, you ask why, like, why do you do things this way? Why did this fail? You know, tell me why, basically. Yeah. And you show respect for the person doing the job. Uh, and it's a way, it's... So it's Rick a Over had all that except the respect part. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it is, you go see, you ask why, and you, you know, there's some deference for the expertise of the person doing the job. Yeah. Huh. And it's, I was, one, I want to learn more about it. It's something that I'd like to research more because I suspect that there is probably a way to create a model for remote work that is obviously still virtual and remote but that would help quell some of the concerns that employers are expressing about people working from home that you create this. I'm going to go see, ask why and show respect for you to understand how you're working in that environment hmm. and ensure that, you know, the way you're working, the, the productivity of what you're doing meets the needs of the business. I am actually horrified by the idea of some sort of oversight like that with uh, with regards to remote workers. Either you let their productivity speak for itself or you don't trust them enough to work remote. So you need to figure out if you trust your employee or if you don't. Here's Here's how I'm going to counter that. There's, yes, there has to be trust. Is there deference to the expert? I do think the first measure of remote, well, the first measure of any work, but particularly remote work, is 
results? Are you getting the results that are needed? The issue is leaders are struggling because they see it as this very binary engagement with their people. Either I have no interaction with you and I'm only looking at results or I am somehow not managing you unless I have constant tabs on what you're doing regardless of your results. There's, despite the fact that, you know, we all got tossed in the deep end on this three years ago, leaders are still struggling with understanding that people can be effective and remote. And I think something like a virtual Gemba walk would allow there to be the right type and a healthy type of engagement with remote employees so that employees, leaders are keeping connected with them, ensuring that they have everything they need to be successful and connecting the work they're doing to the outcomes that they're getting for the purpose of recognition and feedback, not for being big brother. Yeah, but that's what it'll turn into. It could, it could. But we're kind of in that space right now anyway. So I think we need we need to create tools for leaders of remote workforces that will equip them to be engaging and managing performance without going between one of the extremes. Because that's right now how most remote leaders are working. Yeah. They're either big brother or... They don't connect with their people at all. Gotcha. And this is a, the risk in this case is lack of productivity, turnover, continued low engagement. And while it's not as high risk as loss of life, it's a, it's a pretty core business problem. So you need a procedure in some way to support that. Not something wildly rigid, but something procedural that will equip leaders to manage better. And of course, because managers are people too, some of them will suck at it. <laughs> but that doesn't... I, I don't believe in designing for the lowest common denominator. That's fair. Yeah. That you want to provide the tool that lets people work the way that they should or they could at their best. You've shared an example with me. Um, this was a new story for me, so it's kind of fresh in my head around uh, an inspection that didn't go well on the boat. Oh, yeah. So we had a this tactical readiness examination didn't go well. The captain at the time looked at you know what was going on, looked at who he had available, and realized that one of the problems that they were having there was maintaining their procedural compliance. And he looked at the ship and said, well, who do I have that's really good at procedural compliance? Oh, I got 40% of my crew is nuclear trained. They live and die by procedure. So he tapped some of us, volunteers actually. I <laughs> one, of, one of the times I violated my never again volunteer yourself. N-A-V-Y. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, uh, I volunteered along with a guy named Mike and he and I went forward and trained as battle station torpedo reload party leaders. It was actually a lot of fun. 
um, the the procedures that they had were these laminated checklists, which kind of blew my and Mike's minds. Yeah. It, they just had a checklist with grease pencil and the, the steps weren't ordered or, the, you know, they were in an order, but they weren't numbered or anything because they could happen concurrently to speed the whole process up. So basically the reload team leader had to be eyes on watching everything that was happening at once, getting reports from multiple guys at multiple. I've told you before, I can listen to six things going on at once. Yes. It's, and I know it, it's a little crazy making for you sometimes very much, but I can, and yet. I can hear all the different things and make sense of it. The sound powered phones. I wish you could have experienced what it was like on a sound powered phone channel. There's five people talking at once. And you have to hear the one that you need to hear. See that, but seems... you also need to hear what the other ones are saying too. And when you first do it, the very first time that you do it, it is insane. You are absolutely sure that you are never going to get the hang of it, and you'll never be able to do this job ever. See, that seems like it's it's engineered to create an environment where mistakes are going to happen. No, it it what it is it comes out of necessity and yeah. it's facilitated by experts okay and eventually after six months of listening to it you become an expert and you're able to pick out every single person you you can hear where they're at you know what they're doing you know what operation they're doing interesting and it's it's insane but it happens one of the things I'm reminded of because of my background is a model of learning that comes out of nursing. This idea of being a novice and moving to expert. It's the, the Benner model, novice to expert, that we talk about in healthcare. And it sounds like, it sounds like there's this very innate understanding that you're going to have novice people alongside expert people in the submarine operation. Uh, yeah. I, I can't imagine it being any other way ever in yeah. anything. Well, how does the, how does the training, because you know, I have a bit of a preoccupation with training, but then also that culture of safety, how does it support people in that path from, I know nothing to I'm considered an expert. Sure. Uh, so watch stations uh, on a submarine. I don't know how it works on the surface fleet. I assume it's probably about the same. Um, but when you show up on a submarine, you start at the bottom level and you, uh, you don't even start off by standing a watch. You start off uh, learning from a watch stander. And so you'll shadow this person. Okay. Right? So you, you walk around with them. And then you'll stand what's called an under instruction watch. So you're a UI. You're under instruction. And it's very, very, very clear to you that you have no authority in your position other than what is granted to you by your over instruction. He is the actual watch stander. Okay. He will stand next to you over your shoulder and make sure you're not getting him fired. Okay. Right. Very intense scrutiny. It's super intense. Yeah. As some guys are a little more intense about it than others, but every one of them knows that when they've got a UI, whatever the UI does is the same as if they did it. So people are, you know, 
typically pretty uh, protective of their uh, of their own qualification until they they are more confident in the abilities that they're under instruction. That makes sense because it's if if you fail, it means that I don't know the. And I don't know. I, and I get disqualified. Oh yeah, there's nothing nothing worse for a submariner than uh than showing off lack of knowledge. Yeah. Yes. Now, it they will say if you ask them a question they don't know, they will say they don't know cuz it's way better to say you don't know something than it is to answer completely incorrectly. Oh yeah, I want to come back to this, but Tell me, let's talk yeah. again about that under There's, and over instructor. So, because it, it sounds like if, so the under so if instruction, I was your, if you were my UI, yeah, the first thing I would do is see if you knew any damn thing at all. I would hand you the clipboard and go, all right, what do you do first? Okay. And if you had no idea, then I would tell you. I'd like that. Instead of guessing, tell me. <laughs> and so that's the way you learn it first is just, You've got this watch station, and uh, for a roving watch station, you might be learning, you know, three floors. Yeah, it's interesting because I hear standing watch, and I have this, you know, I think about like, oh, I'll I'll take the watch, I'll I'll stand guard, right? But it's different in the navy. It's very different. It's this constant monitoring of the machines. We've known each other what ten years now, so I've heard you talk about standing watch a lot. And I've known there was paperwork associated with it, but <laughs> I, I still had this, all paperwork. you know, I had this like weird game of thrones. Oh, no, I was in a real branch of service. I know. I know <laughs> what you're watching is not, you're not watching the, the horizon for enemies. You're watching the machine. You're yeah. watching the boat. I'm monitoring equipment. I'm monitoring tank levels. I'm monitoring. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's, that's that preoccupation with failure. You're monitoring it. So when it fails, just this a light bulb went off for me all of a sudden. That's funny. But also that yeah, when the I'm, purpose when I was of standing the watch, watch is it's to make certain no failure happens. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll get there eventually. <laughs> so, so yeah. Yeah. So qualification. You, st- you stand your under instruction watches and usually you've got a minimum number of under instruction watches that you should stand before you're familiar and there's also, um, I, I don't remember exactly how all the qualification process worked. It was 20 years ago. But uh, after you finished your under instruction watches and then you stand a, a board, an oral interview for your qualification into that watch station, then you start studying for the next position. So it builds on itself. It takes that last level of knowledge and then builds on it mm. and builds on it and builds on it until and it, but it works the same way you're going to stand in under instruction watch for auxiliary electrician aft and you're going to have some electrician standing over your shoulder making sure you're not flipping the wrong switch on his watch station yeah and so you just build and build and build and then you know the goal the other people are very motivated to get you qualified because say more about that once you're qualified you're filling a hole on their watch bill and reducing their reducing their workload. Yeah. Right? So the more people you have qualified to do something, the more flexibility you have in everybody's schedule. Okay. So it's important and people are very invested in the speed of your qualification. 
Well, there's the, they're invested in ensuring that they're able to demonstrate their knowledge and expertise well, through the process. They're invested in sharing the workload. And I'm guessing they're also invested in making certain that somebody that's going to be working alongside them is competent. Oh, yeah. You have to be competent. Yeah. Because they, that's not toler. It's not tolerated to not be competent. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's more than just, oh, I've got your back. It's, my life is in your hands. Yeah. When you hand that clipboard off to somebody and sign over the logs, chances are at some point you're going to be asleep while that person's working. Yeah. How well, how well do you sleep knowing that you qualified this guy? Yeah. Do I trust that you're right? not going to sink us? Or, yeah. If, you know, if Petty Officer Umpty Schmoots is the one on watch, <laughs> are you going to feel fine or have you made a mistake? And it's one of the reasons why there's that 12-month period where if you don't qualify for submarines after 12 months, they just send you back to the surface fleet where if you screw up real bad, everybody bobs around on a cork for a while. So trust. Yeah, it has to be trust. It has yeah. to be trust. It has to be confidence. Yeah, because it's, I was thinking about that as I was saying trust because it's, I don't just trust you. I have to have confidence in my ability. So one of the things that's vital to high reliability is people need to be capable of instruction giving and receiving yeah <laughs> yeah what are you chuckling about sir uh, no <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we we had some guys show up um one yeah. of them in specific that was just oh yeah he could not be taught yeah you can't you can't have that in any high stakes environment you have to be humble, I think, that you've got to be confident in your own abilities, but open to, like I said, instruction, but also negative feedback. If you do something wrong, you've got to not just own up to it, but relearn. Yeah, you got to take that with no ego. Yeah. yeah. Which is surprising to say because submariners have huge, huge egos. Huge egos. <laughs> Because but, we know what we're capable of. Well, yeah, but this, I think, goes back to that that willingness to say, I don't know. Yeah. Which I love. I love as a concept in any professional work life setting. Oh, yeah, know? it served me very well. Yeah. I mean, as a married couple, you've got to be willing to say, I don't know. Yeah. Um, when you're facing things. But, you know, in the professional setting, the willingness to admit ignorance lack of knowledge or ability we've kind of been taught that's not okay but the fact of the matter is it it has the potential to make us all better yeah honestly it could be the best thing ever yeah i think about you know here are these young men it, it, when you were serving there were no women on submarines correct so young men who are historically not known for humility who have just <laughs> come through this intensive training you've gotten to a place where it's this elite volunteer you know force within you know the navy and which is a a well-established well-regarded branch of the military how do you incent 
in pe- people like those people who are probably on the face of it the least likely to say I don't know to to admit peer pressure <laughs> <laughs> tell me it, more everybody has the same attitude okay so when when you know you see this guy that's been there for 2 years screw up and he says yeah I, I screwed that up and uh I'm sorry and I'm going to learn from my mistake. It's pretty easy to be the brand new guy and go, oh, cool. It's okay to screw up. It's not okay to keep it a secret. That's amazing. Yeah. Well, like I said, it's peer pressure. But the reason they're like that is because the guys before them were like that. Mm -hmm. And the reason they're like that is because the guys during World War II were like that. Yeah. And it, it, you know, it's, it's this continuous thing. Um, I love watching the old uh, 1960s serial, The Silent Service. It's yes. on YouTube. It's fantastic. It was, it, it's dry. It is it's very a little dry. dry. It's and dated. The, and they're and long. They're, yeah. they're very long. It's like an hour long per episode. But it it tells these stories. And Rear Admiral Dykers is so deadpan and stiff (laughs) but he's telling these stories about real submarining and it's it's wonderful because the i think my favorite episode is the sunfishes cook i knew that was gonna be here it's so good but there's this one uh i think i'm just rambling now i don't even remember how this ties in uh i don't know and why (laughs) i don't either no, no, that's it. People saying, I don't know. <laughs> oh, that's right. I don't know. Yeah. Oh, that's how I got to it. I was talking about the, the World War II submariners exactly. and how how the, the traditions of submarining haven't really changed. It's it's still, you know, what is it your dad likes to say? Uh, uh, 247 years of tradition unimpeded by progress. Exactly. That's our Navy. <laughs> That's exactly right. <laughs> it's high reliability, but it's also uh one of the guys online, this was a number of years back, one of the guys on Facebook equated uh serving on a submarine to holding a Mensa convention in a biker bar. That is chillingly accurate. <laughs> yeah. 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 I want to back up a bit. You know, we've talked some about you know, getting ready for, for this and just over the years, you know, as you've shared experiences and I've brought that healthcare lens to these concepts that high reliability happens in high risk settings. Like those things are connected. Yeah. The fear of the consequences of failure. Exactly. Or what drives high high reliability, I think. Yeah. And that you are looking for people that, are skilled and confident, but also humble and not just open, but eager to learning. One of the questions I have when I think about high reliability is what are, what are some of the practices that can be applied outside of the high risk setting that Mm. there have to be lessons learned in how you operate, how you create the teams that are able to perform that way for lower risk areas 
I think that re- that willingness to admit mistakes is probably the biggest one. I would agree. You've got to be willing to come absolutely clean about mistakes that you've made. And people need to be honest in their actions as well. Just because it didn't cause a problem doesn't mean people shouldn't know what you did. Uh, let's say it's at the office. People should know... People should know that you fixed a piece of equipment, mm-hmm. right? Well, you and I have both worked in retail and there's like the closing shift and the opening shift in a, a retail setting. There's like, well, what were these people doing last night? Sure. Right. So how do you, how do you have open and honest, honesty about your actions in that sort of setting? The way we did it in the Navy was through material history. Yeah. So if there was a problem with something, everything got logged. Like it was all mm-hmm. written down to the point where I was able to chase an electronic problem in one of our cabinets back through material history over a decade previous Wow! to find an, a piece of gear that was part of the power supply that had been replaced. You know, again, since the keel was laid, they were keeping these material history mm-hmm. logs and that's part of high reliability is everything yeah. you do has to be documented. Well, I think that's something in any setting, if there's a procedure, like document the stuff, if if it's not clear that it serves a purpose, employees, well, I think, have a responsibility to ask why. So to explain to me why we do it this way. And in this case, you know, the documenting of all those supplies and materials was... Because if we don't have this history, it could lead to a significant failure for us. Yeah. That we have to, we have to have a record in order to. In low risk, the, the trade-off between the man hours required to document that sort of thing, um, that might be part of your simplification. So, in high reliability, a.k.a. high risk, <laughs> that kind of sacrifice of man hours is is a good trade-off. But I, I have trouble seeing where outside of high risk that would be a good policy. Yeah. Well, I think outside of high risk, that type of... I'm going to call it curiosity because it shouldn't just be, I don't want to do the task. But if you're curious about why there's a task, you know, for example, if you have to keep, you know, a log of every time you resupply something in a store, again, staying with that retail, is it, is it because that's the way we've always done it or does it serve a particular purpose? And if it doesn't, is it an opportunity for process improvement to gain efficiency to free up time for other tasks. So having that, are we doing this for a purpose that serves the operation in some way or not? Is probably, is the mindset that you need in the lower risk fields. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Where in the high risk setting, the purpose is going to be crystal clear. Oh, for the most part, yeah. Yeah. Um, it is a good question to ask 
when you're examining something like that, why did it end up this way in the first place? Mm -hmm. Sometimes the answer is a supervisor with extreme OCD who was trying to create busy work for someone. Sometimes it's, we had a problem because we completely ran out of these at one point, which was a huge detriment to the operation. So now we log so that we can roughly track how long it takes us to go through a box of them. Yeah, that's true. And so all the, all the different scenarios are possible. Mm -hmm. Relux reluctance to simplify is ingrained in those high reliability organizations though, because it's built up to that complexity over the course of probably decades. Yeah. Well, it's and going back on that complexity, the fear is that you'll somehow back up over a lesson that was once learned by somebody dying. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, you've told me about the one uh, firefighting video. Oh, that was shared. Yeah, that, the, yeah, the forestall. Yeah, that it it was. Here's a prime lesson on how not to do it. Oh yeah, the the, the forestall so, video was it was something they showed us during boot camp. Yeah, it and, was so viscerally made real for you that you understood we're not going to back beyond the point of the procedure. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah they, they used that video as an example of how not to fight a fire at sea. Yeah, and it's uh, it'll make an impression on you. You know, one of the things that I'm always concerned with in these settings, in these conversations, is what does it take to lead? And some of the additional research that I've done on what the leadership skill sets that support high reliability, I was a little surprised but very pleased to see that mindfulness shows up. And I don't know if that's something that you would have necessarily witnessed in the late 1990s Navy, but... I think about Bruce, because you have said multiple occasions he was the best manager. He is the best manager you've experienced. Absolutely. He was the best direct report manager I've ever worked. Yeah. Was it simply because he was a, a smart guy that knew his stuff? What else about him made him such a good manager? No, I think uh, I, he was a good coach. He was okay. a good father. Um, he was a good person. Still is. Yeah. And... Uh, his style of leadership was uh, very much that same coach style. I, he was a compassionate leader for sure. I don't know that I ever heard him really yell at anybody. So no motivation through fear? No. Well, I mean, fear, yes. Well, th that's the fear that came with the environment. Yeah, not fear of him, Yeah, but fear of consequence yeah. of your action he'd more paint the picture of what was going to happen <laughs> do you think that bruce is a leader that reflected often on his actions and how he showed up with his team i know him to be a, a mindful enough person that i'm sure he did ask himself what the best way was yeah so yeah because i do think you know, you've heard me talk about this enough that I think the core leadership competency for anyone, regardless of industry, setting, 
title is that self-awareness. How am I showing up? Am I aware of my impact? Am I mindful? And even though it may not be a super obvious aspect of leadership in the setting that you know best in terms of high reliability, I do suspect that the very successful leaders in those areas had some level of mindfulness and even emotional intelligence. Yeah. I guess we're done. Looks that way. Yeah. A cat has just sat down on my notes. Let's wrap this up. Yes, sir. I think we should make dinner. I agree.